Today's Moot podcast, Ian Mobsby dialogues with Kester Bruin, writer, thinker and teacher, about the other, technology and new monasticism. Hi Kester, thank you ever so much for joining us today. We've got some interesting questions lined up, so So welcome to the Moot podcast. Great to be here, thank you very much. So Kester, let's kick off immediately. Your book on um, Other, um, you talked a little bit about that at Greenbelt. What would you say are the main points to the book that you're trying to make? Um, I mean, the main point is really in the title that it's our relationship to that which is other that's um, fundamental. You know, I think all Zoom levels, really, um, right through from personally. So, you know, problems with depression, um, kind of locally with noisy neighbours, you know, kind of citywide teenage violence up through racism, sexism, terrorism. You know, right through to Terry Jones and Osama bin Laden. You know, the problem on all sides of that is how do I engage the other? Um, so what I tried to do in the book is just to look at that question, how do I engage the other? And the prism I ended up using was um, Jesus' summary of the law because it seemed a, you know, it, it seemed a good place to, to start with that. The, the story in, in one of the Gospels is followed by, you know, someone saying, well, how do I do that? You know, who's my neighbor? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, basically saying, well, everyone's your neighbor. You know, everyone is, is that person which we need to engage with. So, yeah, it was, it was through that summary of the law that, that um, I kind of found the prism of loving, your, loving God, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And it's those three loves that the book kind of looks at really from the point of view is actually, you know, it's very easy to love what's lovely, but it, this is about loving that which is other, that which is strange. And um, so the book also looks at, you know, the strangenesses within each of those three things. Um, any of those of you who will know me know that I am strange. <laughs> any of you who've spent any time with Ian theology will know that God is strange. <laughs> and any of you that know any of us will know that other people are strange. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's really looking at those, at those strangenesses and how do we engage those strange things within us. So, you know, within the self, looking at the multiple layers of personality that we have and asking some questions about where technology might be causing problems in that, in that realm. In terms of God, you know, what does it mean to have a God who paradoxically both separate from us and bound to us i mean funny there's a there's a there's a quote which I, i've used in a few talks and i think it's so funny but um which i talk about in the book there's a local church down the road for me that that um has this poster up outside which says prayer better than broadband um <laughs> which i disagree with actually i don't think prayer is better than broadband i would take broadband any day of the week <laughs> In terms of response right now, but I'm joking. But it, it, it's that kind of collapse of, you know, well, God is immediately accessible at 15 megabits per second. Uh, and actually, God isn't like that. I'd love to meet someone who found that God was that accessible, but I don't think that's true. So what do we do with that separateness? And, you know, then finally the book ends up talking about how can we then love other people, uh, you know, within society and engage those around us. And I think one of the more contentious ideas within the book is that I've tried to emphasize something to do with the temporary about doing that, that, you know, we, we often want to try and make permanent peace mm. uh, and create permanent, perfect utopian spaces. Very often those can, those can set us up for failure, really, or, or for, for violence when we end up defending them. Mm. 
but it's in the temporary which is something that I think you know is peppered in throughout Jesus's ministry there's a kind of a more gentle beauty and peace which which I think is more accessible to us so yeah you know the book is really about loving the other okay thank you interesting there's a couple of points there. would be really good to follow up so do you think your idea of permanence that idea of living kind of the temporary is a little bit what Richard Raw talks about living in the moment is that the same thing yeah um it can partly be that I mean um I, it, it's not really just about living in the moment although, though okay. I, I do think living in the moment is important in that we are very much um people who are present in the moment and that we understand the moments that we are in but I think it's also really about having structures that um, we inhabit rather than the structures that actually control us and I think you know the key verse in the gospels for me was you know Jesus saying look um, Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath Mm. in other words you know the rules and structures we, we put up they are meant to be there to help us love one another and to and to help us in our life rather than to you know for us to knock into and have us to have to to, to to smash against and will cause us pain so really the idea of the of the temporary is not that that relationships are temporary but that the structures that um facilitate those relationships ought to be looked at regularly mm-hmm. to make sure they don't ossify into something so hard that it causes people problems uh and i think that's you know partly what we see with this whole issue with um, you know the Catholic Church and and um, you know other, other these kind of big institutional issues is that people are knocking up against structures that are not being helpful to them anymore uh, and those need looking at. So let's just take that a little bit further with thinking about institutions. Um, one of your one of the most very good important book was the Complex Christ. I know that mm-hmm. influenced a lot of us, um, but there seems to be a little theme keep emerging, which I think you're again touching on here, which is the idea that you do have a concern about organisations that are not self-organising, thinking about your terminology. Um, And I think you're hinting here that there's something about organisations that can be idolatrous or dehumanising. Do you want to say a bit more about what your concerns are about non-self-organising systems? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm fascinated by self-organising systems, partly because um, they're extremely natural and they occur in all sorts of places within the natural world. And what they tend to do is is to have a, a you know a structure, which um, through which a community of people are organised without any kind of centralised control, uh, and without one person having to be the priest, one person having to be, you know, the king or emperor, um, who actually you know controls the whole thing. Uh, and ants are a very good example of that. You know, ant colonies don't have the kind of queen ant to controls everything ants communicate with one another uh, in quite sophisticated ways but with a very kind of flat authority structure <clears throat> now my concern about that you know i think you've put it well is that institutions can become idolatrous in that we end up um, serving the institution rather than the institution serving us mm. so a lot of my writing is <clears throat> very much kind of polemical in it and it's presenting a view which i want people to argue with so um i'm not attempting uh, a massive amount of balance necessarily <laughs> but I, i'm wanting to help people to re-emphasize that there is something within self-organization which is fascinating and you know that the whole thing in the in uh, the book i wrote the complex christ was that you can look at the gospels through that prism in that jesus came to critique um a top-down temple-based system which was causing people pain. 
Uh, I mean, you know, time and time again in the Gospels, you see Jesus critiquing the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who are imposing these rules on people without any concern or any empathy for for those people's lives. And Jesus says, look, you know, this isn't about um, following the rules. It's about it's about um, helping people um, to live better lives, um, which is why he was very happy to to, <clears throat> you know, as it were, break the Jewish law, but at the same time fulfill it. Um, so it's that critique of top-down temple, you know, the, the kind of structure of the temple that I'm very, very interested in. And I think, you know, Jesus died for that. And then after that, you see, you have this very, very, very egalitarian kind of um, movement of the spirit, you know, where actually this isn't about <clears throat> a top-down system. This is about a body which is working together. And this is about, um, you know, a sharing of gifts and people not needing a priest in order to access God. And I think that's a profound thing that that we've really distorted and keep going back to. You know, we desperately want someone to do it for us. And, you know, so we keep going back to the priest, as it were, as in fact, Jesus totally demolished that. Says that you don't need that. You're a nation of priests, you know. And I think that's what the Jews had got wrong. You know, if you go back to the Old Testament, you know, they'd been... Um, wandering around, you know, with the tabernacle, this very flexible thing, we ended up with this stone temple and we're very much wanting a kind of king thing, very much wanting a kind of hierarchical priestly thing. And, and you kind of see God resisting that, but saying, you know what, if you want it, then you just go for it. You know, I can't stop you in some ways. Interesting. I mean, I'm also thinking there's a bit of a correlation here between Christendom and post-Christendom. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're aware of Jonathan Bartley's and Stuart Murray. Um, critique of that so just thinking about how structures have constantly changed because we have seen about eight epochs of the church now which have had to reform in the context of social change Mm -hmm. Uh, do you think what you're naming is just part of an ongoing process of death life crucifixion resurrection isn't this just about the cycle about human community human relations that you have moments of ossification and of times of renewal um, yeah, I, I, definitely. And um, I think it's it, it's very interesting to see that there's actually resistance to that. Um, you know, this is a this is a faith built on, as you say, a cycle of death and resurrection. But people are very scared about letting things die. Mm. Uh, and they you know they want things to continue, even though there's just barely signs of life going on there. So, no, we have to continue. We have to continue. And it can end up really hurting people in that. But I th- I, I think there is a um, a sense of uh, a new epoch coming along, and I think it's it can be felt in lots of other areas too. It's certainly being felt in the area of education where mm. I work. I think you can also see it um, in 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 changes in government as well, uh, and a, and, a, and a new sense of people wanting to speak with one another. And I think you know technology is doing its part to help people facilitate that. You know, it's very interesting that. You know, I heard someone say, actually, socialism hasn't worked before because we haven't had the social tools with which to make it work. And perhaps now, you know, uh, I'm not claiming Facebook is a great socialist enterprise, but actually people <laughs> people perhaps have the opportunity to be connected in ways that they weren't before. And that, that will change the, the way that authority structures and hierarchies function. And I think the church is, is right to be responding to that. Mm. That's really interesting, Kester. That kind of connects a little bit more with what I'm kind of picking up from the way you think. I find it fascinating that it seems to be the things that are in the world, um, things that you kind of encounter through your work, um, and you you seem to reflect quite philosophically and then think of the social culture, and then you take that to theology. 
which I find really interesting. Is that a deliberate way that you see the world? Um, to, so it's not like with the language of theology that goes out to the world, but the world that comes into the language of God for you. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I, I know for a fact, uh, and anyone would agree with you, you know, there are far better theologians out there than me and far better philosophers and far better sociologists. Um, but, you know, my interest is really in the synthesis, actually, and looking at how those things react with one another when you throw them into a test tube together. Uh, and I think, you know, you know, a lot of my work um, in all sorts of areas has always been about trying to synthesize. You know, I work as a math teacher and um, a lot of kids come in totally uninterested in the subject because they don't think that it has any relevance to anything else and actually their interest is sparked when you help them to appreciate you know what this does have an impact on this and this has an impact on that so my interest really in all these things is helping one thing to be read in the context of another uh, and I think that's you know incarnational perhaps uh, but, but it works both ways you know um, I, I enjoy helping you know bringing philosoph philosophy to impact on theology but also theology to impact on on philosophy and, and helping those things to react together basically. There's also another element of what you do which I think is unusual is it's almost like seeing God in the maths it's almost like a mystery oh, yeah. the way yeah. that you approach it so it's not that you're just being rational but there's an seems to be approached that you are transrational in the sense of much more of a kind of philosophical bordering on mystic approach to seeing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's been one of the real journeys for me mathematically is, you know, again, and it's quite a nice parallel, parallel there really is that for a lot of people, you know, mathematics is very closed. It's very um, sealed off. There are just these equations and that's, you know, nothing can argue with them. Whereas actually, it's a much more mystical subject than that. Mm. Um, and there's a real beauty within pattern, which does suggest much richer and deeper things. Uh, and one only need to think, you know, which is, which is an exercise I do with my students of getting them to think um, about the number of numbers between numbers. You know, and we've got our number line stretching one way. Um, we start with one, two, three, four. But then, you know, zero is quite a a recent invention. The Romans didn't have zero. They had no, no idea that there was such a thing as zero. But the Indian Vedic cultures, you know, introduced this idea of zero. And then you've got kind of negative numbers. So you've got these infinity of numbers going each way. But then, well, how many numbers are there between two and three? Well, there's also an infinite number of numbers between two and three. Mm. So this, this fascinating idea is really about, you know, infinity, but also transfinity, that there is, you know, an infinity of numbers between two fixed numbers. And I think that's, that can be very interesting in terms of ideas of truth that um, just because there's an infinitely rich idea of meaning, that doesn't mean that everything means the same, that everything is therefore possibly true. Um, there are limits on truth, but there can be a transfinity of truth between two positions, if you see what I mean. Mm, I do. So that kind of connects with the stuff I've got ridiculously overexcited about between rationalism and transrationalism in the right. area of mathematics. That's uh -huh. interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Now, just think about your talk at Greenbelt, which, uh, listeners, if you're interested in it, you, it's available through the Greenbelt website. Um, I'm really interested in, in your talk on new social media. Mm -hmm. I, I, think you, I think in this country, uh, quite a lot of the conservative press, particularly the Telegraph, have featured quite a lot of articles about their concern about new media and young people mm -hmm. and neurology. Um, as a teacher, is that something that concerns you at the moment, concerning the other and people's ability to relate to other? I mean, yes and no. 
adults, you know, I think we have always been concerned about how young people communicate. So we, sh- we need to be careful not to just simply criticise because they're not doing it like we did. <laughs> and, you know, you can go back hundreds of years and, and see that adults are always moaning about the way that, that children <laughs> communicate and the language that they used and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but that said, I do have concerns when so many relationships or the great proportion of relationships are mediated through kind of screen text based technologies. Uh, and that to me does feel different. The, it, it can often mean that young people are missing out on some of the nuances of face-to-face contact, what it means to kind of negotiate the little creases that we all have in relationships. And, you know, it's purely speculative, but I wonder about, you know, increases in teenage violence, um, whether there's some connection with increasing in screen time. You know, and, and if you speak to any criminologist or, or someone, you know, most violence is about a very straightforward misunderstanding. Someone cussed someone's mum, someone stepped on someone's trainers, you know, and as a t- any teacher will tell you this, that these, these fights in the playground and, and any of these disagreements boil down to the most stupid and straightforward things. But it's only in the face-to-face that we'll learn to negotiate those difficulties in those relationships um, because what happens online is because you don't have a, a proper sense of the presence of the person my feeling is it's very easy to flame them and to, to have no genuine sense of empathy for them so uh, I do have concerns about a weakening of empathetic feeling between um, people mm. um, which is why I would strongly encourage schools not to go too far down the digital media route within learning it's important that children do have time in a classroom without computers and, and learn to talk to one another and, and that. But, but then again, you know, there are huge positives too. Mm. The, the, these things help people to feel connected, particularly if they're feeling isolated, particularly if you've got, you know, students who may um, be gay or, or, you know, have other differences, which are not easy to immediately um, make known, but they can find support in other ways and actually think, yeah, you know what, I, I'm not that different from other people. Mm. I'm wondering whether new media in itself is not the issue, whether it's actually about global globalisation and consumptive gratifications that's the issue. I'm just thinking about how many people are addicted to consumerism, whether how that's inflicted on Facebook and Farmville and all the rest, whether it's this competitive uh, consumptive element that is the unhealthy bit rather than new media in itself. Uh, I think there's, there are definitely connections there without a doubt yeah and it's it's the idea that everything is you know essentially something to be consumed um and what that i think can do is to reduce um the idea of friendship down to something very very cheap um and you know facebook has done that beautifully um with its with its you know denomination as anyone you're connected to as a friend and i I think that 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 weakens it and it and it, it it does tend to lead in, in the book I talk uh, about collapsing um, people down in just to their facticity just to the kind of basics of their status updates is that all you end up knowing about certain people is their updates on Facebook mm-hmm. and that can feel almost like a commodification of them and yes. treating them um, as something that can just be turned on turned off bought and sold which is a is a real concern without a doubt mm. we're just thinking a bit more about that human dehumanising factor of society um, we both gave talks to Greenbelt which is good, I talked about new monasticism and I think you talked mm-hmm. about what we've just been talking about in more depth um, I'm very very interested that at the beginning of this interview you made uh, a connection to the Jewish Shema and the Christian great 
commandment to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and all your strength. Mm-hmm. There's a deep connection here because that has been the call for monastics for a yeah. long time now with a real focus on that sense of loving God, being true to God, true to yourself, true to others. Yeah. Um, and, there, and we see there's quite a rise in neo-monasticism, new monasticism. Mm-hmm. Rightly, I think, um, you were asked a question at Greebelt and you raised your concern about the potential for an over-romanticism about neo-forms of monasticism. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you affirm and what would you critique about groups like Moot who are attempting to take this vision of the great Shema into modern day life? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'll <laughs> throw my hands up and say, you know, I, I almost planted myself to ask that question because I knew you'd, you'd have a really good answer to it. And I wanted people to hear the answer, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it was, you know, I, I thought it was an important thing to, to, to raise. I mean, first of all, there's huge amounts to affirm, um, you know, <clears throat> ideas of commitment to one another, rules of life, desire to explore and engage in relevant ways. So that is to be wonderfully affirmed and celebrated, and I do that with all my heart. I I think my 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 concern is um, probably about uh, where some of the origins of of the monastic movement uh, were in some cases. In some cases, and that I think there's been a kind of popularised view that that monasticism um, must mean hardship, asceticism. And the connection between pain and withdrawal and closeness to God, mm. uh, and that I, th- I I think is very very dangerous. I don't think we see Jesus connecting pain and and withdrawal from the world with closeness to God. In fact, the opposite. You know, um, a kind of celebration of life and a and a closeness to to people and to and to the world as it were um and i i think that you know basically that it's it's really important that that is discussed and debated um mm. rather than you know the opposite danger which it could become part of the romance of a new movement and you know that all movements in a sense want to create walls uh, in order to know that they're special but you know if, if there were walls being created about ideas of, of withdrawal and um asceticism I, I would I would have concerns because I, I think there's something very very dehumanising about that which, which people you know romanticise about monasticism but I think it's actually very deeply troubling. Okay, let's just dig a bit deeper with that. I'm, I think it's interesting to think what you think about withdrawal is. I'm just thinking that many of us are quite inspired by the idea of contemplative action, mm-hmm. the idea that there's forms of prayer around silence forms of prayer that is getting beyond the full self and the mm-hmm. sense of digging about very much the focus on seeking a commitment to seeking God within as well in as in the world um, and, the, and the idea that actually if we are to be effective in, in engagement with the world that there's something about getting beyond the thoughts that distort in terms of pride, anger, fear yeah. um, out of a kind of a deep spiritual life that then help you to be humble, active, and engaged with the world beyond the full self. So yeah. what do you feel about that idea of this contemplative action that actually requires some withdrawal to be able to be more effectively involved in the world? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that, yeah. I, I think um, very often, though, if, if you talk to people who, who don't know a great deal about the monastic movement, their kind of overriding impression is these are people who simply withdrew and didn't do anything else. Mm. Um, and it's that, the, the danger of the collapse of that paradox of contemplative action just into the contemplation. 
where you just end up navel gazing and actually not doing anything. Mm. That's, you know, what uh, I just want to flag up in a healthy way to make sure that people understand that that is not what this is about. But, but you know, that I think, you know, the true monastic will always have that, that place of action. And I love, you know, Richard Raw's, you know, just even calling his, you know, the, the, the center for contemplation and action. That's fantastic. And yeah. I'm a huge fan <clears throat> of Thomas Merton. Yes, because I think actually his order really did try and want him to withdraw much more than he did. And, you know, he was kind of sneaking off out of his hermitage to go to jazz clubs. You know, that's fantastic. Um, I I think it would have been very, very interesting to see where he would have gone with that had he not met a a tragic and untimely death, Um, because I think he was very, very carefully critiquing that idea of being locked away and actually, um, you know, his work in terms of the peace movement and and with interfaith stuff and um you know kind of <clears throat> anti-nuclear process all, all that kind of stuff was, was very 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 good and very interesting yeah great so so would you say that new monasticism the bit you like the most is more a model of friar rather than monk well, friar is based on seeking to live contemplative life that drives you to serve particular places in community well the monk is much more about withdrawal from the world uh, with yeah, the expectation yeah. of pilgrimage. It sounds to me that you're happier with the friar model. I am, yes, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, obviously, the only friar anyone's ever heard of is Friar Tuck, and you're a particularly <laughs> nice guy, but... <laughs> Let's not make any connections with me. Let's not make any connections. No, but, 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 but in a sense, what I'm trying to urge people to do is, mm. is, is to think about the connections that will be made without you thinking about it. Yes. You know, unless you're prepared to explain to people what a friar really was, they are only going to have heard of Friar Tuck. And therefore, you know, mm-hmm. we need to deal with the way people perceive this rather than the way that we perceive it. And that's why, you know, I want to agitate people to communicate effectively what they are doing when they're doing new monasticism, because the trouble is a lot of people will misunderstand it as withdrawal or as something which it, which, which it isn't. Mm. No, thank you. That's good. Okay, so just before we finish, do you want to say a little bit about what you're doing with the Apple, about agitation? Because I think there's a connection there between the two. Yeah, so Apple came out of um, those of us who were involved in Vox, which is a, a kind of creative community I was part of for many years. And um, really, it, it boiled down to us wanting to engage with you know a single question, which is, how is technology interfacing and engaging with theology? Because we felt that, you know, we were kind of slightly sleepwalking into a hugely technologicalized world. It's a great word, technologicalized. <laughs> and um, really, really thought it was important that we, we began to reflect on this theologically in, in, a, in a kind of intentional way. So we arranged these uh, evenings. And of course, if you're going to deal with technology and theology, you have to call it Apple. <laughs> it seemed the only thing to call it. And, and we await writs from Steve Jobs himself. But there just seems something lovely about, you know, the Garden of Eden and uh, you know there's all this kind of connections anyway um, so we've looked over the months at parallels between the large hadron collider and the construction of medieval cathedrals how these kind of grand projects um, you know came about um, we've looked at um, some critiques of new media we've explored an idea uh, to do with grey ecology which is about um, being green but staying in the city and that the true environmental movement is actually rooted basically in in an urban environment um this this season so september october november we're, we're looking really at um more the organizational side of technology so looking at the idea of 
institutional religion, whether that's an outmoded organisational theology, uh, theology, sorry, technology, whether and then the impact of social networking, not simply on us as, as friends and as people, but on community organising, on local politics. And we've got Luke Brotherton coming um, in October to help us do that. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's um, technology, theology, you know, looking at tool making and, and the way we engage with the world. Yeah. Thanks for that. So just listeners, if you're interested in what Kester's doing with Apple, I really recommend you look up www.kesterbrewing.com. Also, just to say a little bit more about the book, um, the full title is Other Loving Self, God and Neighbour in a World of Fractures. Um, and that's now widely distributed within the United Kingdom and beyond. Kester, this, this has been really helpful. Thank you for your time. Brilliant. Thanks very much, mate. OK, cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net. Thank you.